God, we praise you that you are a loving God, that you are faithful, that your faithfulness extends to thousands of generations to your people. We praise you that you didn't leave us in our sin, but you provided a way for us to be reconciled to you in Christ. We pray that as we open your word this morning that you would speak to us, even as we sung, teach us to obey you, teach us your heart for people, and teach us how we might grow more to love you and to love your people. God, this morning we want to pray uh, for the Rosses. We pray uh, a blessing on their family as they have a new baby in the house. We thank you for the blessing of, of childbirth and the joy that it is to be able to raise children. We pray that you would give them grace as they uh, raise another kid in their house. We pray that you would be uh, with Nate and Becca as they um, teach him, as they teach him from your word. And we pray that from a young age he would come to know you, that he would repent of his sin and believe the gospel. We pray that we would be a church that would surround them, uh, that they wouldn't feel like they have to parent alone, but that they can rely on people to uh, help them out, to provide for them, uh, and to, to come alongside them in encouragement. We also want to pray and lift up the Hmong Shua people in China. God, we pray that, that you would complete the Bible in their language, that you would give people translators um, wisdom to, to figure out how they might bring God's word to them in a way that they can read and understand. We pray that instead of worshiping your creation, you would help those people to, to use creation to point it back to you. Help them to see that creation is not the end in itself. Creation is not deserving of honor and thanksgiving, but you are. And we pray that you, they would see that you are more powerful and more sovereign than any other deity that they have. And God, we pray that for ourselves as well. We pray that the idols of our hearts the idols of the country that we live in wouldn't, wouldn't replace the love that we have for you. We pray this morning that you would help us to see that because you first loved us, we can respond to you in love and we can respond by loving other people. Amen. Recently, I've been doing a little bit of research on divorce and I asked the question, why do people get divorced in America? What kills a love that people promised would last forever? Well, you might not be surprised to hear some of the reasons. Lack of commitment, marital infidelity, lack of intimacy, conflict. Now, this is not a sermon on marriage and divorce, but, but there's a clear lesson here. A failure to cultivate and cherish a love in a marriage doesn't provide the foundation for lasting faithfulness. Not all of you are married, but I'm sure that you can relate in some ways. You know, that, that book you once loved is now collecting dust on the shelf. That favorite song just doesn't quite hit the same anymore. That old game is overshadowed by one with better graphics, new content, a better story, but I know that all of us can relate in our relationship with God. That's why you're here, isn't it? You're here because a love for the world makes our love for God and our love for other people grow cold. Maybe it's money, success, patterns of sin, 
busyness, entertainment, sleep. What do we do when everything around us pulls us into a selfish pursuit of comfort and pleasure? What do we do when our love grows cold? Our passage this morning in Revelation 2 answers this question. You can turn there with me. What do we do when our love grows cold? I think the answer from our passage is that we remember God's love and repent. Remember and repent. Revelation chapter 2. This morning we're going to unpack the first of the letters that Jesus dictates to the seven churches. And each of these letters follow pretty much the same pattern. You know, there's a, there's a command to write, a description of Jesus, a recognition of the church's good works, an accusation of sin, an exhortation to repent, an exhortation to hear, and then a promise to those who will conquer. And as we walk through this passage, we're going to see three motivations for the church to remember and repent. Two of them are negative, and one of them is positive. And by way of reminder, this doesn't just apply to the church in Ephesus. It doesn't just apply to the church in the first century. John is writing the whole book of Revelation as an encouragement to Christians across all time to persevere in faithfulness until Christ returns. And like them, we too need to remember and repent because opposition is certain, because judgment is certain, and because victory is certain. Follow along as I read the passage again, starting in Revelation 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. First, we need to remember and repent because opposition is certain. The big C church, universal, is no stranger to opposition. In fact, almost all of the letters that John writes refer in some way to the tribulation and trials that believers will face before Christ returns. But that's the whole point of the book, to encourage Christians to hold on until Christ returns and until he restores proper worship. In this case, though, there's, there's specific trials that this, this church has overcome that relate directly to the exhortation that Jesus gives them. He starts out by defining their works. He calls them toil and patient endurance. You see that there in verse 2. And their faithfulness in the midst of opposition has two parts. There's an active component and there's a passive component. Their toiling is active. They're regularly testing those who call themselves apostles and finding them to be false. And their endurance is more passive. They are bearing up. 
they're literally carrying something under the weight of persecution. And we don't know much about the false apostles that they're dealing with, and we don't know exactly what they were experiencing in terms of persecution. It's possible that, that the Nicolaitans in verse 6 relate to some of the other issues in other churches that we'll get to, like food sacrifice to idols, sexual immorality, but, but it's not clear. What we do know is that the Ephesian church is being honored for persevering in the face of ongoing opposition. I wonder what, what kind of opposition you're facing. After all, this book is written for us as much as it was written for the first century church. What are you facing in, in, in terms of opposition? I can think of a few examples. Maybe it's the modern day political agenda that seems to remove Christian values and freedom. That definitely seems like it, it correlates with the first century Roman Empire. Or maybe it's bearing up under false teaching that seems so rampant in our churches today. Prosperity gospel, people who preach a works-based salvation, progressive churches that push for an end of final and absolute authority in replacement of personal individual authority. Authority based on feelings, authority based on their perspective of how the world works. That does seem to line up with their testing of false apostles. Maybe it's even more, more personal. I prayed for the Rosses this morning. Maybe opposition for you right now is the difficulty of raising children in a world that seems to reject the biblical worldview at every turn. Maybe it's fear that your children will learn more from their friends at school or from social media or from the internet than they will from you. How do we endure in the face of what seems like ever-increasing opposition? I hope some of you are feeling a little bit of tension right now. Personally, I'm a, I'm a big fan of movies and books that have some kind of plot twist. The writer sets up an entire reality where you know who the good guys are, you know who the bad guys are, you know what the goal is, but in the back of your mind, there's, there's tiny alarms that start to go off. Some, something isn't right here. This just seems too, too easy. It's that feeling that, that something is gonna go horribly wrong but you have no idea from what direction it's coming from. And then, and then the music starts to shift, the tone darkens, and then the whole world just kind of flips on its head. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Jesus isn't offering some pep talk on how to persevere better or what evils to look out for. This, this isn't an encouragement for them to keep doing the things that they're doing. He's, he's bringing the sword. He's bringing judgment. You guys are heartless in your pursuit of sound doctrine. You've abandoned the love you had at first. The Ephesian church, just one generation before, was commended by Paul for their love. You can read that in the letter of Ephesians. And the idea of love prevails in that book. It's what drives Paul's argument for their pursuit of unity, Unity in the church between Jews and Gentiles, husbands and wives, children and parents, masters and servants. That was the pep talk. That was their encouragement to keep doing what they were doing. And here, just 30 years later, is a call for them to repent. What makes love grow cold? Well, they love truth more than they loved God or one another. 
they forgot the words of Jesus, who summarized the greatest commandment in two parts. You shall love the Lord your God, and you shall love your neighbor. We read that together this morning. It's probably why John spends so much time in his other epistles talking about love. This is from 1 John. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Again, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And again, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Are we so different? I know I'm not. If there's anything that I've learned in the past few months, it's that when I disagree with what other ministries, other churches are doing, my initial response isn't love, it's judgment. Brothers and sisters, what would it look like to hold on to the truth and persevere in the name of Jesus in a charitable manner? The word charity is derived from the word love. How might we tolerate people without tolerating their message? This is what I want to hear about people at the branch, things that they say. That's, that's the most appealing version of Christianity that I've ever heard. I want to hear that. Or, you're the nicest Christian that I know. I want to hear that. And that's not to downplay the seriousness of sin or the truth that the gospel teaches, but it's an encouragement for us to embody the same love in our lives that the gospel teaches The gospel teaches that sinners are utterly deserving of judgment, but are still being shown compassion and love. So why can't we show that same love to other people? I think one of the the best examples of this is a, a, a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. She's a Christian author. She's written some books about her testimony, but as a short summary, she was converted out of a lesbian relationship while working on a project to expose the Bible as dangerous and threatening to the feminist movement. And the reason was that a pastor and his wife showed her love. They showed her hospitality. They showed her compassion, all the while pointing her towards truth in Scripture. The secret to persevering in the midst of opposition is not religious dogma at the expense of relationships. It's not hiding in our own churches, trying to protect the truths that we have. The secret to persevering in life is to remember the love that God had for us and repent of our lack of love for others. Opposition is certain, and so is God's judgment. Follow along again as I read verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. God's love is the cure for our cold love. And I think think that's what he's talking about when he says, remember from where you have fallen. Not only are they to remember how they used to love other people, they need to remember the source of that love. In Matthew 24, Jesus promises persecution, tribulation, but he also says this, 
then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. In order to restore our love for God and for others, we need to dwell in the security of God's love first displayed for us in the cross. We love because he first loved us. We don't repent to earn God's love, but we remember the love that God has for us, and it should cause us to repent and obey his word. Otherwise, the judgment of God will come. You can see that there in verse 5. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. You might recall from the end of chapter 1 that the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. And this makes Jesus' introduction in verse 1 have a little more weight. The words that he's speaking are written by the one who walks among the seven lampstands, who will remove their lampstand from its place. He intimately knows their situation. You ever think about it like that? Jesus is walking among us. We don't need to pray and ask him to be here, because if we are a church that preaches the gospel, he is already here. He intimately knows what they're dealing with. And likewise, he knows if they will repent or not. And I think, I think the use of a lampstand as imagery is really important. The local church, the branch, is meant to be a display of the light of Christ. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If we really are the light of Christ, we cannot be hidden. Our works, our love for others will display that we are his, that we belong to Jesus. John 13 says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There's no room for a dim lamp in the kingdom of God. He will remove their lampstand and it will cease to represent Christ. I spent some time reading John 15 with a guy this past week, and in it, Jesus uses this analogy of a vine, branches, fruit, and it's a, it's a similar picture to what Jesus offers here in Revelation 2. You can tell that the branches belong to the vine by the fact that they have fruit. You know, if I, if I hand you a twig without any context, unless you know like the ins and outs of botany, you're, you're probably not going to be able to identify it. But if I hand you one and it's, it's got some grapes on it or it's got some apples on it, you, you know that it came from a grapevine or an apple tree. You will recognize them by their fruit. And I, I don't want to say that I know exactly what this looks like or when it happens, but from the passage, it's clear that a church that doesn't reflect the love of God will cease to be a church. It will stop doing the thing that God intends display the love of God and the gospel to the world because it's already stopped doing the thing that God intended for them, loving others. Those two things are mutually inclusive. They go together. Loving other people and being a church of God that shows his love, those are the same thing. Maybe the judgment is that people will stop associating the church with Christ at all. 
Maybe, maybe it has more finality to it. Maybe it's referring to judgment on the last day. When Christ stops dwelling among the church, among his people, they will no longer dwell with him for eternity. How do we, how do we protect against this at the branch? This letter isn't written necessarily to individuals, but to a church. How do we stop our love from growing cold? Well, like I said earlier, we too must remember from where we have fallen by remembering the love of God towards sinners like us. This is why we need to be reminded of the gospel daily. We need to, we need to be reminded that there's nothing we can do to earn God's love. We can't make God love us, and we're dependent on him alone to initiate our salvation. I think this is why in John 15, Jesus tells us that we need to abide in him and in his word. We need to remain as close as we can to the source of life itself. I once heard that it's, it's so easy for worldliness to creep into our churches and make godly standards seem odd and sinful values seem normal. So if our gathering isn't saturated with the word of God, if we aren't constantly being reminded of truth day to day, it's, it's easy for us to forget about what God's done for us and for worldly standards to begin filling our churches. So I ask you, what, what are those reminders in your life? What are ways that we as a church are reminding each other of truth? Do you have people in your life that will point out sin? People to ask you, what, what happened to that compassion that you used to have toward others? You used to be so fired up for the gospel, but now it just, it seems like you've drifted into worldly complacency. And that, that's a hard thing to say. You know, I, I pray that God would reveal that sin in my own life and, and give me the boldness to be able to, to say that to other people in grace and love. But this is why we exist as a church. Together, to hold fast to God's love and to display the light of Christ to sinners who are just like us. Lastly, we need to remember and repent because victory is certain. Follow along with me again as I read verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So these, these two final statements occur in every single one of the letters with a little, a little bit of variation. The first one, the statement, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, uh, actually comes from the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 6 says, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Ezekiel 3, he who will hear, let him hear. And he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 13 with the parable of the sower. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And this sevenfold repetition, one in each of the letters, conveys a single message. God intends to reveal truth to some, but conceal it from others. In God's perspective, there are only two options. You either hear and receive, or you don't. You either see and believe, or you don't. You either conquer and remain faithful till the end, or you don't. Why do I say this? Because victory is certain, but not for everyone. Victory is only certain for those who hear 
obey, and conquer by remaining faithful till the end. If you've read through the book of Revelation before, you, you might have come out of it asking the same questions I did. You know, why, why is there all of this symbolism? Why all of this imagery? Why, why can't it be written in, in concrete language that we can unpack simply? And I think the reason is that the warnings of the book have one of two effects on people. They either harden unbelievers or they will shock genuine believers out of complacency. All of you, myself included, will experience this today. You will either hear God's word and walk away content to continue living for yourself, or you will hear God's word and be reminded that we are in a war. There's no room for complacency. There's no room for an easy, pain-free life. There's no room for people who make it halfway and give up. It's a hard road ahead for those of us who say we're Christians. And to top it off, we don't, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. You might be asking yourself, what's the point? You know, what's, what's the point of suffering? What's the point of enduring to the end of a difficult life? How is this victory? What is, what is true victory? I, I want you to try to answer that <clears throat> for yourself. Take a moment and just reflect. H- how do I define victory? Let me, let me preface what I say next with two things. First, that this is my opinion based on my own perception of the world. And second, I'm only 23. (laughs) But I've started to mentally label our current generation, Gen Z or or whatever you call it, as the victorious generation. What I mean by that is that my generation is characterized by a victorious spirit. Now, I I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. But there's this driving sense that with the right support, with the right people, with the right resources, with the right equal and fair opportunity, anyone can tackle any of the world's problems. For some people, it's climate change or racial injustice. But there's, there's Christians that are like this. I heard someone say to me last week, We are the generation that will complete the Great Commission. Is that victory? If if that's victory, how can I come up here and say that victory is certain? How do I know that? Well, I think for us to understand what victory really is, we need to see how Jesus would have defined it. What was victory for Jesus? Was it complete triumph over the Roman Empire? Was it setting up a government for the Jewish people that would have lasted forever? No. It was betrayal, abandonment by those closest to him. It was an agonizing death at the hands of the Romans. It was complete rejection by the God of the universe. Victory for Jesus was a completion of the gospel narrative. Victory was reconciling sinners to a just God by atoning for their sins on the cross. 
it's like an opposite picture of how we would define victory. He's saying that victory is suffering. Victory looks like defeat. And if Christ's victory was death, then what's ours? What is victory for you? Well, if if you're a Christian, it's endurance. It's faithfulness amidst suffering and persecution. That's what he says there in verse 7 when he talks about conquering. The conquering there is not our conquering. It's not defeating your giants or having a successful career or even spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. He's talking about people who hold fast to the truth, people who remember the love of God, and people who remain faithful all the way to the end. As I was thinking of a way to illustrate this, I came across H.G. Wells' book, The War of the Worlds. Uh, there's like some movies about it too, I think. But he, he weaves a story about a Martian invasion that seems to almost guarantee the extinction of humanity. And the book has a very anticlimactic ending. You, you might even say an anticlimactic victory. After running for his life, after hiding for weeks on end, the, the narrator feels like he's surrounded by death. He thinks there's no hope left for humanity. And he goes outside, and he discovers the Martians, dead, all of them, their machines abandoned. And he writes, they were slain by the disease bacteria against which their systems were unprepared. Slain after all man's devices had failed by the humblest things that God in his wisdom had put upon this earth. Victory had had already been decided. The moment the Martians stepped foot on earth, they they had lost. They had entered into a disease-ridden planet. Their bodies weren't prepared for it. Humanity just needed to survive long enough to see it realized. So it is with the Christian life. A life of perseverance till the end will result in conquering victory. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And this is a direct callback to God's original creation, the Garden of Eden. And and the clear message is a restoration to perfect fellowship with God. Fullness of joy, eternal life. Why would anyone want to suffer in the footsteps of Jesus? It's because he offers all of these good things. A new heaven a new earth where we will be with God forever. We just need to endure. We just need to make it there because victory has already been realized in Christ. If you're not a Christian, this is the good news that we give our lives away for. Christ has already suffered. He's already died so that we can experience an eternity with God. It's not easy. It's not glamorous. It's not victory in the same way that we would often define victory, but it's worth it because Christ was already victorious. This victorious and risen Jesus invites you into a right relationship with God. Receive that love. Receive the love that you did nothing to deserve. And I'd love, I'd love to talk to you more if you have questions. Don't leave without considering a life of victory, true victory over judgment. 
And if you are a Christian, which I hope is most of you in this room, what are ways that you are reminding yourself of the victory that Christ has already won? For some of you, that might just mean gathering with God's people more regularly. It might be setting aside time each day to be in his word. For most of us, it's probably changing the way that we think about success and victory. A a successful career is not making a lot of money, getting promotions, retiring early. Instead, it's faithfulness to display God's love to others and to steward the gifts that God's given you. Being successful at raising children is not raising kids who are moral, who are outwardly good, who are successful in the world's standards, but it's a faithfulness to teach them God's word, to love them unconditionally, and to pray regularly for their salvation. A successful church is not a large bank account, thousands of people, hundreds of baptisms, but a faithfulness to preach God's word, to encourage one another to persevere. A successful Christian life is not right theology, prosperity, constant emotional highs, but a faithfulness to believe the gospel, persevere in suffering, and respond to God's love and obedience. I hope that we remain faithful to the end by remembering God's love for us and repenting of our sin. Don't let your love grow cold. Don't let the pleasures of the world or its hardships or its comforts pull you into complacency. I pray that the the opposition that we face in this world will be a motivation to hold on to the truth, to display the name of Jesus in a charitable manner. I pray that, that the judgment of God would stir us to saturate ourselves in his word so that we might cultivate a love for God and for other people. And I pray that the victory of Christ would compel us to remain faithful until the end. Let's pray.